The highly publicized decision by President Obama to add more federal dollars toward embryonic stem cell research may be fueling misconceptions about how drugs and medical products are created. It's these misconceptions that some say need to be heard as part of a broader debate. You're listening to ReachMD Radio on XM160, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Bruce Japson, the healthcare reporter with the Chicago Tribune, and joining me today is Dr. Scott Gottlieb. Dr. Gottlieb is a resident fellow at the American Enterprise Institute and a former deputy commissioner at the Food and Drug Administration. In addition to being a practicing internist, Dr. Gottlieb is nationally known, speaking and writing, and his commentaries are featured regularly in Forbes magazine, the printed Wall Street Journal, and online at Wall Street Journal's Opinion Journal. And he joins us today from his offices in New York. Dr. Gottlieb, welcome to ReachMD Radio on XM160, the channel for medical professionals. Thanks for having me. Pleasure to be here. It is a pleasure for me because I've read your writings in both Forbes and the journal. And a piece that you wrote earlier this year in the wake of the president's, you know, highly publicized action relative to embryonic stem cell research is one of the reasons why we wanted to have you on our program because really a lot of people are not sure about what's going on. And if you could give us some of your thoughts on what he did and where we're going from here. Well, he created more opportunities to use federally subsidized research trials to study embryonic stem cells. And so that's going to open up new avenues for research on on stem cells. There was a lot of stuff already going on with respect to stem cells in the private sector and private research dollars that were being used to subsidize a lot of that research. But now you're going to have federal money flowing in. So obviously more money means more research. Whether or not that translates into new developments coming out of this research, whether or not it actually translates into things that could benefit patients, I think we're a long way off from that. And there's a lot of steps that need to take place, many of which haven't been very well contemplated. Well, could you tell us a little bit about these steps? And if you could give our listeners a little bit, you, you when you were at the FDA and kind of maybe some background there as to, you know, what, what steps do you think need to be taken? I think one of the most significant challenges is going to be the regulatory environment for any products that come out of this research. There's a lot of concern about the propensity of stem cells to create certain side effects, one of which is the development of benign tumor called a teratoma. And it's not just a theoretical concern, it's reasons to believe that stem cells could morph, if you will. These embryonic stem cells could morph into these kinds of tumors. So there's a lot of regulatory concern. And in fact, the one study, human study of a stem cell product that's gone forward, where a company, Jerome, was looking at using a stem cell product to try to treat spinal cord injury, It was a very slow regulatory process. The FDA only allowed them to put the product in one patient at a time. They spaced it out by a month, so it was a very slow clinical trial. They only allowed a very small number of patients to be enrolled. The application to request permission to go into this clinical study was a record size of an application. I think it it was about 12,000 pages. It was the largest application requesting permission to start a clinical trial in recent memory. Uh, It's called an investigational new drug application, an IND. So there's a lot of concern on the part of regulators, not entirely unfounded, that there could be some theoretical risks associated with these products. And in fact, when I was at the FDA, they had a workshop, an advisory committee meeting to try to discuss what the regulatory pathway would be for these kinds of products. But it's not well demarcated. It hasn't been fleshed out. It hasn't been thought out. And there's going to be a lot of scientific work that needs to get done to try to develop the tools that are going to be used to apply to the regulation. None of that's been thought through. There's been a lot of enthusiasm, obviously, for stem cells. I think a lot of the enthusiasm has outpaced what the practical realities are, even from the research. But even if you accept some of the 
thinking about where this research could lead in the future, there still hasn't been a requisite investment in thinking through the steps of how you get any kind of a product to a patient. So you would say that just from an agency side, I mean, and anybody who's familiar with the FDA process, uh, whether you be a physician or a pharmaceutical company, this is one underfunded agency. And would you say that that is part and parcel of what we're, we would see with the stem cell development? I think when you, whenever you're looking at a new technology area inside FDA, there's a lot of caution. There's a go-slow approach. So the same thing was manifest with respect to gene therapies, where the agency has created a very intense regulatory process for how those products get reviewed. And in fact, there's very little research and development going on with new gene therapy products, notwithstanding all the, all the hype and all the promise that those products you know, were purported to have about a decade ago. You see very little investment in that going on right now, partly because some of the science hasn't panned out, but partly because the development process is very hard for those kinds of products. Some of it stemming from safety concerns that arose after an unfortunate death at the University of Pennsylvania in a gene therapy trial. So I think you're going to see the same kind of environment for the stem cell products where there's going to be a, a lot of regulatory scrutiny applied to this. It's going to create some, a lot of uncertainty. It's going to create a lot of hurdles. And, you know, my argument is we're putting all this money in the front end on the basic science. I think we're guilty of allowing expectations about what the fruits of that science are going to be to outpace the practical realities of where we are, even with, this, even with the early development, even with the early science. But we still we haven't thought through what the next steps are going to be. How do we then take some of the things that come out of this research environment and try to move it along the development process that can have a practical payoff for patients? Now, the near-term promise from stem cells, and if you talk to people in the pharmaceutical industry, they don't necessarily see the stem cells themselves becoming therapeutic products because they recognize that there is a very difficult regulatory pathway ahead for those kinds of products. They see some of the promise of experimentation with stem cells coming from using the stem cells as basically research tools, but not necessarily as therapeutic products themselves. But again, getting back to the original premise, I think the administration, people who have been involved in this space, have been guilty of not fully thinking through what some of the difficult steps are going to be to try to commercialize or develop these these stem cell tools, these stem cell products into therapies, even while they're allowing, uh, I think, expectations to really get ahead of where the science is. Well, if you're just joining us, or even if you're new to our channel, you're listening to ReachMD Radio on XM160, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Bruce Japson, the healthcare reporter with the Chicago Tribune, and I'm pleased to have as my guest today, Dr. Scott Gottlieb, who is a resident fellow at the American Enterprise Institute and a former deputy commissioner at the Food and Drug Administration. And we're talking about stem cells. And he wrote a piece in the Wall Street Journal about stem cells and the truth about medical innovation. And we're just talking, now, Dr. Gottlieb, do you think that because there is no sort of regulatory pathway, if you will, or the fact that the FDA has never seen this before. Is that stifling innovation, especially at this time in our economy? Because you might have a small biotech company out there saying, I don't know if I want to deal with this right now until somebody else goes first. Yeah, well, I don't know if it's stifling innovation in that private companies that want to do stem cell research can't get funded specifically because of the regulatory uncertainty. I think that there's been so much enthusiasm in this space and you see state efforts to try to subsidize some of this research, and there's so much money coming in, federal money, because of the politics around it. I mean, we need to be honest about that. That's why this has become, that's in part why this has become such a hot area of research, uh, at least for federal money, that there's so much resources that private efforts are able to get funded. But 
obviously the regulatory uncertainty in every other realm of biotech, I think, does create a lot of impediments to people getting venture capital and other early financing for high-risk opportunities, high-risk scientific opportunities. So there's no question that regulatory uncertainty is something that scares away investment capital. Investors are very good at calculating marketplace uncertainty. They're even willing to take on the scientific uncertainty, the serendipity of science of not knowing if a target's going to work or a new approach to developing a therapy is going to work. But the one thing they have a very hard time calculating and trying to mitigate is regulatory uncertainty. So of all the different levels of uncertainty that go into a life science investment decision, I think the one that creates the biggest obstacle is the regulatory uncertainty. And that's why it's so important for the regulatory authority to speak very clearly, to speak plainly, to try to give guidance whenever possible about what its approach is going to be to regulating new product areas. That's obviously a hard thing to do because it's sometimes hard for the regulatory authority to envision how they're going to treat a certain certain scientific process or a certain kind of application, but wherever possible, they need to do that. Now, there is a company that I'm familiar with, uh, Osiris, which is out of Maryland, and they have an adult stem cell therapy that is, I believe, in its final stage. It may go before the FDA this year or next year. Is that different because it's adult stem cells that they're so far along? I mean, does that make it easier for an embryonic stem cell developer such as Geron to do they have a better idea of what to expect, or is the difference completely different? There are differences and there are similarities. I think that probably the similarities significant enough that you know seeing how one sponsor gets treated does provide some clarity for other sponsors, even if they might have a different product and might be trying to use it for a different indication. So there is some cross-learning that's going to take place there. But I think all the products in this space face the same general uncertainty, if you will. And it hasn't been, even though FDA has held a public meeting and held an advisory committee and workshop to try to discuss what the regulatory pathway would look like, it hasn't been well demarcated and hasn't been set out. Do you think, as someone who has you know, served in a past administration and observed us on the sidelines, do our policymakers in Washington, do you think that they understand this issue fully? No, I don't. I think when you talk to people on Capitol Hill, they talk about their support for medical innovation, and immediately the conversation turns to their support for NIH. So they think supporting NIH is synonymous with supporting medical innovation. Which got a big bunch of money on the stimulus. Its budget almost doubled. I mean, And there's no question that the NIH has made monumental achievements and improved our capacity when it comes to scientific innovation in this country. And I think that's one of the great success stories, the sort of symbiotic relationship between the NIH and the private sector to develop a very vibrant life science sector in this country. But but you can't just have basic science research funded by the federal government and have a vibrant life science sector. You need to have incentives to allow that science to get translated into practical benefits for patients. You need to have a coherent regulatory process. And none of that gets considered. People in Washington, you talk to policymakers on the Hill, they talk about their sort of credentials on being for medical innovation, and, and it always becomes a discussion around their front, their support for NIH even while they're doing things that would blunt the creation of a private life science sector. They don't see that as an essential component, and it is. And I think even the people, the folks at the NIH, they understand that this is a symbiotic relationship. They understand the need for a very vibrant private life science sector that could translate a lot of the work that they do into practical treatments for patients. They're not in the business of developing drugs, and they don't represent themselves to be in that business. So they understand that this is uh, you know, part of a larger complex. The folks on Capitol Hill don't seem to understand that. And that's why you see legislators who will support NIH and talk about their support for medical innovation at the same time that they're putting in place policies that clearly would be destructive to a private life science industry. Could you talk a little bit about maybe 
if you were to pass a bill this year about the kind of incentives that could help? I think th- anything you can do to help develop a better regulatory process, anything you can do to give FDA a better scientific foundation and give it more resources to provide clarity through guidance about how it would treat different product areas is going to help reduce uncertainty and help hopefully entice more investment into some of these riskier, if you will, life science ventures. Sometimes the riskiest life science ventures, the ones that seem to have the longest odds, do produce the products that have the most benefits because they're sort of shooting for the moon, if you will. I think another important fact is that the average patent life on drugs has diminished over the course of time because of policies that have been put in place over the last decade that favor generic drugs over branded pharmaceuticals for reasons. Obviously, there's a bias towards trying to allow early generic entry to try to lower drug costs and increase access. And those obviously are noble goals, but they come with a price. And the price is that as you reduce the patent terms on the branded drugs and you have shorter patent lives and shorter times to recoup investments, you do discourage some investment. And we're moving the bar lower and lower down in terms of the time, the patent life that's left on these branded drugs. And that's causing some capital to flow out of biotech and flow out of pharma. And so I think we should think long and hard about, first of all, going forth with additional policies, which are being proposed right now that would shorten patent life still, but also trying to restore some patent terms to products and areas, therapeutic areas that we think are important from a public health standpoint we want to encourage investment into. And would you think some of this is going on now with the biogenerics bill? Is that one to keep an eye on? Absolutely. I mean, that's that's what I have in mind when I was discussing that. If you look at the proposal by Congressman Henry Waxman, he would uh, reduce the patent terms, the effect of patent life on a biologic to as little as five years. Clearly, that is an insufficient time frame to recoup a very big investment, a billion-dollar investment in the development of a new uh, biological drug. And if that bill goes forward, which I don't think it will, because I think the cooler heads will prevail on the Hill. But if something like that went forward, I think you'd see a lot of capital leave the industry immediately. And the fact that such an irresponsible proposal can even be put forward, even if it was meant as sort of a bargaining position, I think reflects the disdain, frankly, that some on Capitol Hill have towards the private industry and the lack of understanding of how investment capital gets formed to try to subsidize the development of these very high-risk ventures. Well, with that, I'd like to thank Dr. Scott Gottlieb, who has been our guest. He is a resident fellow at the American Enterprise Institute and a former deputy commissioner at the Food and Drug Administration. I'm Bruce Japson of the Chicago Tribune. I've been your host, and you've been listening to ReachMD Radio on XM160, the channel for medical professionals. ReachMD online, on demand, and on the air. Please visit us at ReachMD.com, and I'd like to thank you today for listening.